Before we uh, read from Luke, I do have one verse, you don't have to turn there, that I'd like to read from another book. It's the book of Job. Uh, Job's three friends are, are trying to advise him as to why God was punishing him for his sin. And they, but, and they say a lot of errant things. They say a lot of things that aren't correct, but they say a lot of things that are profound. One of the things, one of the friends, Bildad, asks a tough question in Job 25, verse 4. And he says, how can a man be right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? The question proposed by Bildad is what we are seeking to answer in our text today. How can a man be right before God? One more introduction here. In order to understand this, we need to define some terms. I don't mean to get theological, but it's important for us to understand this. It's this passage of the Pharisee and the tax collector is predominantly concerned with the doctrine of justification, which means, definition, a legal declaration in which God pardons the sinner of all his sins and accepts and accounts the sinner as righteous in his sight. I will read that again in a minute. We need to understand the difference between justification, what we're talking about this morning, and sanctification, a lot of what last week was. Sanctification is an ongoing work in our lives by faith, making us more holy. Justification declares a work done, done, justified. Sanctification is an active work that's in the process of getting done, but already not yet, same time. It's important to distinguish but the passage here we have is concerned with how God pardons the sinner of his sins and accepts the sinner as righteous, pre-cross, by the way. So here's that question again from Job. How can a man be right before God? How can he who is born of a woman be pure? How can you or I or anybody else be declared righteous? What makes a man pure in the eyes of God? This is an account of two men. One of them will be declared right, and the other will not. All right. Verse 9 through 14, Luke chapter 18. He also told this parable, Jesus, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's God's word. Now there's a lot to be said here. But let's attempt to go verse by verse and see exactly what that is. Verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. He's telling a parable, an illustrative story, aiming to teach, popular method of Jesus. And just in this Gospel of Luke alone, you can find 24 parables. 
Some of these illustrations appear in multiple accounts, but this one is right here. You can't find it anywhere else. So who's he telling it to? Well, his disciples are around. He followed him everywhere, but it tells us who's nearby. Those who trusted in themselves. It's safe to say it's a mixed crowd of Jews. And since our story includes a rather self-righteous, exalting individual, it's clear that there were some scribes and Pharisees. Pharisees were the most religious, outwardly holy people in the Jewish society. Jesus clashed with them several times. We'll explain more on them, quite a bit more, in a minute. So there is a mixed crowd of Jewish people here that Jesus is addressing. However, it's worth noting that those who trusted in themselves relates to anyone and everyone who has ever lived. No man or woman has ever existed that hasn't trusted in themselves. Everyone eventually must wrestle with this truth. Go to your workplace. Walk down the street. Talk to whoever you see. Any random person will do. Ask him this question. Are you a good person? And then follow that up with this question. Are you going to heaven? You'll get a lot of different responses, but most of them will be, and depending upon who you're talking to, assuming you're talking to a Christian, although unfortunately, some Christians get this doctrine wrong. They'll say, I am or I am not going to heaven because I am or I am not a good person. It's one or the other. I am or I am not a good person because I do this or I practice that. The actions. Trusting in ourselves isn't uncommon. It's the natural state of man. That which is born of flesh is flesh. We are all born by nature children of wrath. This is by default. It's a default high view of man and a low view of God. We have a strange and wrong view of what is good, what is truly good, and what isn't. Yes, we're all born this way, and unless the Holy Spirit changes us, we will remain this way. We must be born again or regenerated by the Spirit of God to understand the things of the Spirit. We need hearts of stone removed and to be given hearts of flesh. So let's remember that. I wanted to tell us that because we need to know that as we look at this Pharisee. Okay? We don't want to come away from this account looking at him the way he's looking at the tax collector. Look at this guy. We don't want to find ourselves thanking God that we aren't like him. Continuing at the end of verse 9 in your Bible, it reads, And treated others with contempt. Do you know what contempt is? To have contempt for someone is to have the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration. It's worthless. Deserving scorn. In layman's terms, you look down on them. Why does contempt follow trusting in themselves. Some of these in the crowd believed their lives were, were more righteous because of the way they lived, and some believed God, believe it or not, believed God made them this way. That righteousness that they had, God gave it to them. We'll get to that later, too. They were better than the riffraff. This attitude will go hand in hand with the belief that you are self-righteous, or rather not knowing that you're self-righteous, belief that you are, in fact, righteous. It's like this. 
going with what Jared said last week, speaking of a wrong attitude about life, if everyone thought like me, life would be a better place. Generally, your judgment of people will be based on your own self-worth. So how you view yourself and the way you do things, if you view that as the way and the best possible solution in all circumstances, that's how you're going to look at other people. And you're going to say, well, they don't do it the way I would do it. Verse 10 says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector or publican or gatherer depending on your translation. Two men went up to the temple. The temple was on the highest mount in the city, so it looked out over everything in Jerusalem. And they went up to the temple because it was considered their house of prayer. Normally, just this is setting, normally there would be a daily animal sacrifice for atonement and an official time of prayer at either 9 o'clock or 3 p.m. And it's not certain here which one of those times he was at, or if he was even here at that time, but they were up there. And here's another thing. Don't picture a Pharisee and a tax collector. It's not just two men at this time. Pharisees loved crowds. These, temp these prayer areas, they were crowded. That's the setting. Now, let's meet our two main characters. Let's start with the Pharisee. One of the commentators I like to read, one of Richard's recommendations, actually, thank you, Richard, is Albert Barnes, and he does an excellent job of explaining just exactly who these religious leaders were. This is a long quote, all right? So bear with me. And this guy talks a lot smarter than I do. So, quoting him, the Pharisees were the most numerous and wealthy sect of the Jews. They derive their name from the Hebrew word farash, which signifies to set apart or to separate because they helps to special strictness in religion. Their leading tenets were the following, that the world was governed by fate or by a fixed decree of God, that the souls of men were immortal and were either eternally happy or miserable beyond the grave, that the dead would be raised, that there were angels, good and bad, that God was under obligation to bestow special favor on the Jews, and now get this, that they were justified by their own conformity to the law. They were proud, haughty, self-righteous, and held the common people in great disrespect. They sought the offices of the state and affected great dignity. They were ostentatious, fancy word for showy. They were good at putting on a show. Praying in street corners, seeking publicity and the bestowment of alms, they sought principally, principally external cleanliness and dealt much in ceremonial ablutions or washings so that they would remain ceremonially clean. They maintained some of the law of Moses very strictly. In addition to the written laws, they held a multitude which they maintained had come down from Moses by tradition. These they felt themselves as much bound to observe as the written law. Under the influence of these laws, they washed themselves before meals with great scrupulousness. They fasted twice a week. This is when they did it. On Thursday, when they supposed that Moses ascended Mount Sinai, and on Monday, when he descended. They wore broad phylacteries and enlarged the fringe of borders on their garments. They loved the chief rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues. You've heard Jesus talk about that. In general, they were a corrupt, hypocritical, office-seeking, haughty class of men. There are, however, some honorable exceptions recorded, and I stopped there. 
as he kept going. <laughs> uh, the honorable exceptions, I would assume, are Gamaliel and uh, Nicodemus. Now, I know it's not the first time most of us have heard about the Pharisees, but I thought that was nice to reflect on exactly who, were they, who they were. These men were the prestigious sect, the honorable ones, the good guys. No one was holier than the Pharisees. No one was closer to God than the Pharisees. Character number two, the tax collector or the publican. Tax collectors collected money from their own people to give to the Roman government. They had a lot of freedom with this too. The tax collectors would bring in new taxes because the people didn't know exactly how much money Rome was requiring. So they could say, oh, there's a new tax when there really wasn't and pocket the money and take it for themselves. They were not revered. These people were Jews hated by Jews, strongly despised, thrown into the same lot as thieves and adulterers. They practiced extortion. That's what we're just talking about, gathering money by force or threat, because they could. They had the Roman guard to take their word for it over somebody else. And Jesus uses them in a negative light in another place in Scripture to make a point about loving our enemies. In Matthew 5.46, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? However, Jesus didn't concern himself with high status of society when he picked his core followers. Fishermen weren't necessarily frowned upon, but tax collectors were. In fact, the writer of the gospel we just quoted, Matthew, was a tax collector. We know the Pharisees found Jesus' company to be inappropriate. They wouldn't even go near tax collectors for fear of being unclean. But here's Jesus in Matthew 9. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, a Pharisee would not risk being unclean by doing such a thing. They didn't understand Jesus' love for wayward sinners. Remember, we are talking about justification. That's the word of the day. But Jesus here says he came not to call the righteous. With the Pharisee and the tax collector, one was justified or made righteous, and the other one was not. Now we have a better understanding of these characters. Let's go through the text. The Pharisee, verse 11, standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Stop there for a moment. So the Pharisee was standing and praying. There is nothing inherently wrong with standing to pray. Okay? But it can be. It can be wrong to sit to pray if your heart's not right. It's a matter of the heart. If you're standing or, or spread out so all can see, Jesus knows why you're doing it. It's wrong. Jesus even says in Matthew 6, 5-6 through 6, to not be like the hypocrites who stand on street corners but pray to your Father who sees you in secret. 
Now, that also doesn't mean it's, it's wrong to play, pray here, like we just did. It's not, it's not wrong to pray publicly, but pray for the right reasons. So this is the question that you ask yourself. What, why are you doing it? For, for God or for men, what, why are you making this prayer? This Pharisee, and here's the deceptiveness of sin, this Pharisee, Pharisee probably thought he was praying for God or to God, but we, we can tell by the content of the prayer who was receiving the glory. So he was standing to pray, which is a normal posture, and it's also worth noting that some translations have prayed to himself, where the ESV simply reads, prayed. Is he truly praying to God, or is he listening to himself talk? The reason I bring this up is because this prayer sounds like a personal pep rally of accomplishments. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Whoa, what, what, what other men? What kind of man? I thank you that I'm not like that guy or that guy, that extortioner, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So he begins his prayer with a comparison. I'm not like them. To paraphrase, God, thank you so much for making me so much better than everyone else. I don't steal money from people, but I am a just man or a fair man in this context. I don't commit adultery and I am surely not like this wretched tax collector. I mean, look at him. Eh? And as a side note, this is just kind of awkward to me. If you're like looking at other people while you're praying. I'm not like him. Like did they, no, they didn't exchange glances. We know why. Verse 12 I fast twice a week. We talked about this earlier from Barnes. This, this happened on Mondays and Thursdays. This fasting is excessive and customary of Jewish leaders of the time. The Old Testament, believe it or not, only required one fast a year. And that was on the Day of Atonement. He goes on, I give tithes of all that I get. Why don't we preach tithing from this passage? Sorry. A tithe, or a tenth of his possessions, which the Israelites were required to give to the Levites. Apparently, he took this law a lot farther than needed. He tithed of everything he had. He tithed more than he had to tithe. I know some churches that would be glad to have this guy. Jesus rebuked a group of Pharisees in Luke eleven forty two, 42, saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue or cumin and every other herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Sure, he was doing more than he was supposed to. and He was fasting more and he was giving more, but that doesn't mean he was doing it for the right reason. Just like his prayer, why is he doing it? Verse 13. We'll move to the tax collector. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, it's not for certain why he was standing far off. But it was beneficial to the Pharisee that he was. He didn't want him near him. The Pharisee knew he was clean, and the tax collector was not clean. Standing far away. Maybe he doesn't want to be seen. Maybe he doesn't want to make a scene. He's not the center of attention. Somehow the Pharisee noticed him. 
He stood far away from the Pharisees and he wouldn't lift his eyes to heaven. He wouldn't look up. He beat his breast. This particular sign of sorrow and shame is only found in one other part of the New Testament. In Luke 23, 48, after Jesus dies on the cross witnessing the spectacle of the crucifixion, the crowd, after watching Jesus crucified, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. This type of action, this is deep anguish, this is sorrow, this is a man who knows he's wrong in his ways. This is the posture of guilt and shame. This is somebody that knows their heart is wicked. Beat his breast over his heart. And then look at what he says again. God be merciful to me, a sinner. God be merciful to me. Now, we need to say it. The word merciful is holiskamai in the Greek, which means to appease or make propitious. This word is only found one other time in the New Testament. In Hebrews 2.17, speaking of Christ, says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. For the sins of the people. That propitiation is holiskamai. It's the same way as merciful to me is in this sinner's prayer. This holiskamai, this appeasement or propitiation is referring to the sacrificial atonement of Jesus. We know this side of the cross that men are atoned by Christ's work. But this parable is pre-cross. What is this tax collector hoping at? There was surely an animal sacrifice made at the temple that day, which is a picture of Christ, but he didn't know Christ. Could the blood of these animals satisfy? He was a tax collector. He was a bad guy. He was the bad man. He was not a righteous man. In fact, he was just about the epitome of all the things the Pharisee described that he wasn't. What hope does a man like that have? And now the scandalous part of our passage, verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This tax collector is the one who's justified and declared righteous. That doesn't make any sense. Let's just be honest about that. That doesn't make any sense. This man. We have a Pharisee who does all the right things and more, but isn't just. And then we have a tax collector who does all kinds of evil, who is declared just pre-cross. One does good things and the other does evil. Is it what they do? Which of these men exhibits humility? How can a man be right before God? Did the Pharisee do wrong? We have to ask this question. Did the Pharisee do wrong? Were the actions he took bad things? Is it bad to fast? Is it bad to give? No. The actions aren't wrong. He's at the temple. He's praying. He does spiritual things. He 
He's doing what he's supposed to do, and he's doing more. But this is the dangerous part. And I didn't, I learned this very recently. This is the dangerous part about the Pharisee. He's thanking God for being the way he is. You know what I mean? He believes God has given him the righteousness he possesses. He thinks God has made him better than this tax collector. This isn't just a legalist. And I'm going to borrow this from John Piper because he explains it well. As far as we know, the Pharisee was a total lover of the sovereignty of God. As far as we know, he would have said, Not I, but the grace of God in me has worked this righteousness. He says, I thank you, God, that I have this righteousness. That was not his mistake. His mistake was that he trusted in this supposed God-produced righteousness for justification. When it came to justification, for that is the issue, as verse 14 shows, this man was trusting in the wrong thing. He was looking at the wrong basis for his righteousness before God. He was looking at the wrong ground for his righteousness. He was looking at the wrong person. He was looking to his own righteousness, and it was his, not because he created it, but because he acted upon it. It was in his will and in his heart and in his actions. It was his, and it was put there by God, he believed. That's what he's trusting in. Keeps going. Almost done. He's not presented as a legalist. One who tries to earn his salvation. That is not the issue. One thing is the issue. This man was morally upright. He was religiously devout. He believed God made him that way. He gave thanks for it. And this is what he looked to and trusted in for his righteousness. And he was dead wrong. See, God doesn't make anyone righteous in the way that the Pharisee believed he was. Legalism does teach, do this, don't do that, you'll be saved. It's not the core issue here. The issue here is people thinking that they can be right with God without his mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. We quoted that earlier. Yes, all other religions besides Christianity teach you to follow steps and receive salvation. You can earn your way to being exalted. Work hard enough or practice the right actions, and God will take you on the basis that you are, in fact, a good person. Well, decent guy. And he just kind of covers the cracks. We talked earlier about the natural state of man. Most people think they are good. That's default. And the ones that think they are bad, I assure you, they don't think they're that bad. Remember what the Pharisee was doing at the beginning? I'm not like him. Most people don't think they're that bad. They can always find someone worse to compare themselves to. So let's take somebody different besides a Pharisee. Let's take somebody else. Uh, just average Joe Schmo down the, down the street. I'm not as bad as uh, so-and-so. I'm not as bad as Trump. I'm not, I'm not as bad as... Whoever. I'm not getting political. I'm not bashing any politicians. I'm not going to go down that road. And the ones, they can always find someone worse to compare themselves to. That's contempt. I got this from Paul Washer. And now this is very... 
very accurate illustration. If you don't think God's common grace is having an active impact on you and non-believers, you are mistaken. If God were to withdraw a fraction of his grace from you, you could make Adolf Hitler look like a choir boy. That is offensive. And it's supposed to be. It's supposed to make you look to something greater than yourself. Any goodness that we have, we have it because God is gracious. You may say, I'm not as bad as some. I do better than most. Maybe you think that. That's a bad place to be. If not for the grace of God, there you go. What do you have that you haven't received? And if you did receive it, why do you act like you didn't? Why do you act like you just had it on your own? The Pharisee trusted himself. He thought he was good because of what he did, and he thought God was to be thanked for the wonder of a man that he was. What does Scripture teach? By works of the law, some will be justified. No man will be justified. If you fail in one area of the law, you are guilty of breaking every single bit of it. Paul said, if you could be made righteous by the law... He was. In fact, it would be a good time to look at that passage. If, there, if there's any you're going to look at with me, this is the one. Philippians 3, chapter, or Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. If not, that's okay, because I'm, I'm going to go right into it. Talking about the righteousness of Paul as a Pharisee. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh... Also, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, all that stuff. Count it as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Not having a righteousness of my own. Paul was the best of the best when it came to being a Pharisee. Ritual, morality, knowledge, prestige, purity, heritage, you name it, every single bit he counted as rubbish that he might know Christ. None of the good he did in the flesh could work to save his soul. And that goes to you too. None of the good you do can work to save your soul. Remember what justification means. It's a legal declaration, definition again, legal declaration in which God pardons the sinner of all his sins and accepts and accounts the sinner as righteous in his sight. The doctrine of justification by the saving work of Christ and Christ alone is of utmost importance. You need to get this. You need to get this. I know it's confusing, but it shouldn't be. It's not the actions. This is the study of salvation, fancy word, this one's extra, soteriology, and this passage is particularly focused on the justification aspect of that doctrine. Soteriology is how you're saved, the doctrine of salvation. It's easy to confuse justification, 
the grounds by which we are saved, declared, and sanctification, we talked about earlier, the process of becoming more holy. If you confuse these, you're in trouble. You're in big trouble. You will fail to rightly divide God's word, and your confidence toward him will be shaken. You must understand this. Jared was right last week telling us to deny ourselves. Jesus' word, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me daily. That's right. That's right. This is not contradictory. Being moral, being good, that's not wrong. Being admonished to do those things is right. You must do those things as a result of believing in Jesus. In fact, that is a command that you will do, I would argue, as a fruit of the new heart. You will show signs that God has done a work in you. Those works are great. Those works are wonderful. Do good works. Be zealous for good works, but don't trust your works. But faith without works is dead. This is another sidebar. Faith without works is dead. Here's how, here's how to understand that. James says faith without works is dead. Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Are those contradictory statements? No, they are not. No, they are not. James is talking about evidence of an act of faith. If, you're, if you don't have works accompanied with your faith, then your faith is dead and it's not true. Paul is talking about justification. By grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself is the gift of God. Not of works. He goes on to say, and here's the thing, if, if, if you start to lean toward trusting in your works, he goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand. He prepared the works that we're going to do. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's nothing you can boast about if you're doing works that you were already given to do beforehand. If, if everything that you have received, you have been given. You see that? Faith without works is dead. That's true. But salvation is by grace through faith. That is true. We who have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus put no confidence in the flesh and seek to live a godly life by the Spirit, not by the flesh, through the power of God for the glory of God. How are people saved? That's the question we've been trying to go through the whole time. How is one made just or right? Jesus says in Matthew 5.48, You therefore must be perfect. Uh-oh. As your heavenly Father is perfect. God requires Perfection. You must be holy as he is holy. Peter even quotes that. You must be spotless, pure, and perfect. But I think we're more like the tax collector here. I think, I think we know we aren't. Some of us stumble at the thought of good people not going to heaven. And there's one problem with that. You have a polluted premise of what a good person is. There are no good people. Not in the eyes of God. I'm not talking about well done, good and faithful servant. Sure, there's, there's a sense in which there's good to man. But I'm talking about the great good here. No one is good but God. Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, no, not one. You can't start from the belief that people are good. God doesn't grade on a curve either. Alright, I'm kind of good. So maybe that and God, me and him together, fancy word, synergism, maybe us together, we can 
save me. No. He requires perfection. You are not, apart from God, you are not pleasing at all. You're quite the opposite. Now, we lost a president this week, number 41, President George H.W. Bush. I didn't get to hear President Bush speak on him. I, I want to. But I heard a newscaster say, and this is, this is no offense to the Bush family or any of them at all. I heard a newscaster say, what a good man has entered into heaven. Heaven's host is crying right now to receive such a great man. Now, she could have meant he was good because he was a Christian, but I don't think that's what she meant. Folks, if President Bush is in heaven, it's because of Jesus. It's not because of President Bush. Ben Shapiro, popular conservative political show host, interviewed Pastor John MacArthur this week out at Grace Community Church in California. Both of these guys would be considered to be good men, especially on the ride. Ben is Jewish, and John MacArthur is a Christian. They're both good guys. As of today, unless Ben has come to Christ, one will be justified and the other one won't. Even two men thought of as good are not on the same playing field. This is why the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is so offensive to Jesus' audience. You see, as far as cultural dignity is concerned, no two men could be more different. That's their common denominator, though. Here's, here's the common denominator. They're both practicing Judaism. Other than that, completely different. You have the prestigious and the notorious. You have the famous and the infamous. The good guy and the bad guy, supposedly. Again, though, how are they justified pre-cross? They didn't know Jesus. I want to think about these passages from the Old Testament. David, in Psalm 32, 1 and 2, writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In Psalm 143, we read it earlier. We read it earlier. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant. For no one living is righteous before you. That's David. Genesis 15, 6. Quoted at least three times in the New Testament. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Paul quotes that in Galatians 3, 6, and he continues to say this, and this is profound. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Preached the gospel beforehand. That's interesting. God justifies by faith, and he always has. Romans 1.17 says, For in it the righteousness of God, in it the gospel, is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Salvation has always been by faith. 
even under the old covenant. Hoping in God, having faith in God for justification, because everyone has sinned. Everyone has sinned. No one is good apart from God, and all fall short of the glory of God. Don't miss this either. Christ is the only hope anyone has in this world for salvation. That sure and steady anchor that we just sang about, he's the only hope. It's the only way. The way, the truth, the life, no other God, King David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, every one of them that came before were saved by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. How can that be? The gospel was preached to them beforehand. Do you know that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world? They weren't saved by their righteousness. Don't get confused by the Old Testament and the New Testament, or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In fact, I, I don't have time for it. Read the book of Hebrews. That will open that up for you. Jesus is the only way. Old Covenant, New Covenant, they're all saved by Christ. God didn't have a plan B. Jesus isn't plan B because the Israelites messed up. God always planned it before the foundation of the world. We know we are bad. The tax collector knew he was not good. But his hope was not in what he did. His hope was in God's mercy. Which is why humility is so important, right? What does it say in verse 14? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, humility, you have to have it. To desire mercy. You don't ask for mercy without humility. A person that believes themselves to be just in their own eyes will be proud because they will boast about their ability to earn what they deserve. And they might get it if they don't repent. It's interesting to contrast justice and mercy. And it seems like we all want justice when it comes to other people. Go, go for a ride in a city traffic sometime. Um, get cut off and demand that that person pay the penalty for their bad driving. And then whenever you do it, well, but I was, you know, I had to get to my kid's thing. I had to go to the sporting event. I don't know, whatever you do. We all want mercy when the fingers are pointing at us. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. A low spirit, a humble spirit, is acceptable to the only being that should be high and lifted up. Consider this contrast from Proverbs 30. 12, 13. Tell me if this sounds like anybody. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those who have loft, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you see the difference? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The proud don't think they have need, but the humble understand their desperate need for something greater than themselves. 
Jesus gives us the greatest example of humility. In Philippians 2.8, says, although he didn't count equality something to be grasped with God, says he found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. This is God humbling himself down to the form of man to die for man. Those who are sick don't need a doctor. Remember Jesus' words. I came not to call the righteous, sinners, to repentance. This proud Pharisee thought he was good because of how he was. He thought he was made right, but a tax collector is the one that's counted righteous. How is a man made right with God? The sacrifice, not an animal sacrifice. The perfection, the perfect work of the author and perfecter and the finisher of our faith, fulfilled and sealed by the name above all names, and there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, the one who is well-pleasing in the sight of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how sinners are saved. Jesus is how God and sinners can be reconciled. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. That's something to sing about. Faith in His work, Christ's work, and His atoning sacrifice, that every sacrifice in the Old Covenant, all the sacrifices, all the animal sacrifices, again, read Hebrews, pointed to Christ. Here's a question for you. Who is telling the parable? 101 right there. Jesus. Jesus says one of these men are justified. Jesus declares the tax collector justified. You know how you will be exalted or saved? Only if Jesus declares you justified. And if Jesus declares you justified, you are justified. The church is his given to him by the Father. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. You who all believe, you all who believe and trust in him, by faith, be encouraged, brother or sister. No one is able to snatch you out of his hands. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. For what? God gave him who knew no sin. To become sin for us is a great exchange in this verse so that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ takes our sins, everyone, past, present, and future, puts them on himself, and we are exchanged with his righteousness. If Jesus declares you justified, you are righteous. Yes, it is true, by works of the law, no man will be justified. But, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. This is how a man can be made right with God. We're almost there. This is how the unjust become just. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You will be exalted You will be justified. No one is saved without Jesus. You cannot make it your goal to please the Father if you don't know the Son who is well-pleasing in His sight. 
there is grace for the humble. Sinners receive one of two things, mercy or justice. And i got to ask you, which one do you want? Everybody's going to get, well, not everybody's going to get what they deserve. A lot of us are going to receive grace. But you're either going to be graded by Christ or by your own righteousness. The Pharisee opted for justice. Don't pray to God by listing your accomplishments, but confess your sins. The tax collector saw his need for mercy. Praise God for his mercy. Sing about it all the time. Sins there are many. His mercy is more. To close, I just want to quote some of these hymns that have talked about this wonderful truth. Andy, Kathy, you guys can come go ahead and come up. I sang this song last week. Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. Same song, Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing can for sin atone. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This is a big theme, guys. Big last one. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe. It's that time of year. This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones He came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on Him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. We sing in a moment. He took my sins and my sorrow and made them his very own. And he bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Jesus is the justifier. Matthew 1.21 reminds of a great promise that should be at the forefront of our minds right now. We'll close with this. Consider the words of the angel of the Lord to Joseph. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are gracious. That you don't judge us based on our works, but that you give us works to do for your glory and our benefit. We thank you.